Last week, we began with this quote from Pope Benedict XVI. Being a Christian is not the result of an ethical choice or a lofty idea, but the encounter with an event, a person which gives life a new direction and a decisive a new horizon and a decisive direction. And ultimately, we reached that key theme from last week. As we worship, so we believe, so we live, which deepens our understanding of just what Pope Benedict was getting at. When one encounters the God of history, it sets their life on a new direction. And when one encounters God, one is ultimately should be led to worship because he is the most true, the most beautiful, the most good. And when we worship, that informs our belief, as God describes the way in which he was to be worshipped, as we kind of look through those various vignettes in Exodus. And then from worship, man was drawn into relationship with God. And from that, God gives man a way of life that leads to just and flourish living. Worship informed man's belief about himself, about the world, and about God, and that changed the way that he lives. And then a clarifying remark was made towards the end of class about, well, what is the nature of worship? What's it do for us? And which I drew out the importance. It draws you up into the life of God. And so Christian tradition really supports this reality in many places, but St. Augustine, uh, he's a doctor of grace, but speaks so eloquently and writes so eloquently. So on page two there, you see some of his uh, two famous quotes about how love draws us up into the life of God. Worship of God draws us up into his life. So he writes, by God's gifts, we are set on fire and carried upwards. We grow hot and ascend. And then the flame on the altar is the burning fire of love. We direct our course toward God with love. So you can see that in his writings and what he has said. Worship of God, when we come to love God, draws us up into his life. And we're carried and continue to be carried upwards with this love, divine love of our creator. Individuals have been drawn up into the life of God, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, since he walked the earth. For he told us, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age, in Matthew 28. From the beginning of the church, Christians have confessed as witnessed by the church fathers. So Origen was a prolific writer in the early church, um, and he was replying to um, a pagan's taunts, of Christianity, and he wrote to the question, what was the purpose of God's descent to human beings? Origen answered that God had entered our world in the person of Christ to implant in us the happiness that comes from knowing him. And then St. Gregory in that second quote there, Jesus did not teach. It is blessed to know something about God. He said that blessedness is possessing God within oneself be known by God, not only to, to be known by God, not only to know God. As we worship, so we believe, so we live. It draws us up into the life of God, and it's not just a mere knowing ideas. It's knowing a person, and that person's life takes shape of our life. And so we're led to coming to an encounter with Jesus Christ. So I have some Bibles on here. Um, I have the scripture on your tables, I should say. Um, I have the scripture actually like printed out for us. Um, but you're welcome to verify what I say in scripture or pull it open if you have your own Bible to follow along. Um, this, what you see here, this where it starts with 14, comes from Luke 22. And it is Jesus at the Last Supper. So how do we, 2,000 years removed from Jesus' physical presence on the earth, come to encounter him? And so in Luke 22, he writes, 
And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So if someone has their Bible open, that section that you're following along with, is there like a heading right before that? Mm-hmm. What's it say? This one says the last supper. Okay, and then what about the one like one or two before that? Starting, or how about you just read them off, Faye, from Luke 22 all the way down, just so we can get a snapshot. Yep, the title of the pericopes, those little sections. Uh, the first one is the conspiracy against Jesus. The second one is preparations for the Passover. And the third one is the last supper. Perfect. So hearing Faye say that, we can verify in our Bibles. It puts in context what meal is taking place. So when Jesus says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. It should call to mind, and I want us to call to mind what we talked about last week with the Exodus and the Passover. The meal, the event that brought about the Exodus that in which God had said, here's what I want you to do with this mission. I want you to go out to the mountain and worship me. And we saw Pharaoh's rebuttals and why he wouldn't let them do that. And ultimately what God was trying to do with the Israelites, this whole back and forth with Pharaoh, as well as his mission for them. So then Jesus spends his last night on earth celebrating the same Passover that precipitated this great event of God redeeming his people from slavery in Egypt. Jesus is celebrating the meal, point I there at the bottom of this page, the perpetual feast of the Passover that brings about the Exodus. And the Passover was a perpetual institution for the Israelites. And it's described in Exodus 12 as it is written, this day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. So we recall last week how we laid out the connection between, between the two, that the Passover and Exodus created a new nation with a particular mission originating from its relationship with the one true God. I wish I would have spelled these out last week, but you have them there before you. So we'll spell them out now. God gives the Israelites a new worldview in their desert wanderings. They continue to encounter the mighty acts of God and come to know him, leading to praise and worship of what he has done for them. The Israelites come to believe that God is who he says he is and will do what he has promised. Although, as you read throughout the desert wanderings and Exodus and the books to follow, they're quick to forget. (laughs) They don't have perfect memory. And then God makes known his will to the Israelites in the Ten Commandments, giving them instructions how to live. If you remember, we kind of talked about having a room without having any rules. So if we possess a room, but there's no really rules to guide its proper use, people can come in and just destroy it, maybe a sibling. Or um, if I have a nice room here at work and people just come in and trash and I can no longer use it for its proper use, then I don't have a room for just flourishing to do what it's supposed to do. And so God gives the Israelites some rules so that when they inherit the land, God may reign supreme 
And they actually might have a just way of life, a way of life that leads to true flourishing. Then God makes a covenant, a promise with the Israelites that is lived out by worship of God and then obeying his laws, the commandments. Then finally, what they're supposed to learn and what we participate in is ultimately it is the very life of man, man himself as living righteously, that is the true worship of God. But life only becomes real life when it is received its form from looking towards God. We can't create our own lives that leads to true just flourishing. We have to look towards God in his divine wisdom and follow his commands in order to live righteously. And when we do that, the glory of God is man fully alive, as St. Irenaeus said it, which is not in your handout, but um, it's often quoted. And so beautiful to think about. I'm feeling my best purpose in life when I'm living just as I'm supposed to be. Not doing more, not doing less. I'm giving praise to God. So now if we reconsider what Jesus is doing at the Last Supper, the Passover, the same meal that brings together all the context of what God has done and God put forth for mission and for the Israelites, we see that Jesus changes the meal that made present the Old Covenant into a meal that perpetuates the New Covenant. So in the Greek text of Scripture, when Jesus says, like, do this in memory of me or do this in remembrance of me, it's a Greek word, anamesis. And this quote from the Catechism captures what it means when we hear these words, whether it's memory or remembrance in our English or in the original Greek. Christian liturgy not only recalls the events that saved us, but actualizes them and makes them present. The Paschal mystery of Christ is celebrated, not repeated. It is the celebrations that are repeated, and in each celebration there is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that makes the unique mystery present. So we take a moment for that. Celebrated, not repeated. The liturgy participates in this eternal moment that connects Jesus' passion, or the Last Supper first, then his passion, his death, his resurrection, and then ultimately his ascension. Because Jesus, existing in heaven, being united with the Father, has drawn his life out of our chronological time, but is present to us in eternal time. So we enter into these moments when we come to the liturgy, and the Holy Spirit makes this unique mystery present. And then celebration. It's a participation in uh, the way knowable, but unexplainable on this side of heaven. So we can think about it rationally, as well as we can think about it because our Lord has told us so. We can trust his true words. But the actual dynamics, the physics of how can this event that happened 2,000 years ago be present to us is not something that we're going to be able to explain this side of heaven in a scientific way. So Jesus celebrates the Passover meal, and then he says, do this in memory of me. He gives them a way to per perpetuate the ministry that he has established for the apostles, as well as this meal, this covenant. And so Jesus is made known in the breaking of the bread. And so we just have to skip a few chapters in Luke to 24. And when we encounter Jesus walking on the road to Emmaus with two disciples, so if you flip, if you have a Bible open and you want to flip there, it's Luke 24. Otherwise, it's present here on your page. When he, that being Jesus, was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it 
and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn with us when he talked to us on the road? While he opened to us the scriptures, and they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened on the road, and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. So point one there. What structure does the account describe Jesus' actions? What connections might you see from our earlier passage from Luke 22? Yeah, right? But like how? Well, let's uh, put some words to it. Um, how, how does Jesus give the bread at the Last Supper? What's it say? You can flip back just a few pages if you wanted to look it over again. Yeah, he blesses it. He breaks it. No, oh, he took bread, gives thanks, broke it, and gave it to them, saying. And then we have here, and he is at table with them. He took bread, blessed it, broke it, gave it to them. And it shouldn't be that surprising that Luke's going to describe it in the same language. But he is trying to make a point here. Because the meal that Jesus was participating in in his Last Supper is the same meal, the same participation with the disciples in this house at Emmaus. We, the reader, should be clued in that the same ritual and the same meal, the same act of blessing and breaking is taking place. And then tying into how does worship of God, how does the liturgy interact with us and draws us up into this life? Well, their hearts burned with love. And that love made them give witness to the 11, validating Jesus' words to them, that do this in remembrance of me. Because how, are they, how is he made known to them? He's made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Now, not written here, and we'll talk about it as we talk about the Mass, and um, I could point you to other places in the Catechism, but the breaking of the bread in the early church and from tradition has always been used to describe the Catholic Mass. So the act of Jesus breaking the bread. So we see that in Acts of the Apostles as well. Like, who, what did the early disciples hold fast to? Well, they held fast to breaking the bread, fellowship, and the teaching of the apostles, and then the prayers. And so... When he was made known to them in the breaking of the bed, he was offering this sacrifice again. And he shows himself in his presence within the bread. So I mentioned last week how we're at a, like a 30,000 foot view. You can kind of see how we're making a descent more now into like we're still kind of up here in the clouds. But we're going to get to how the liturgical life, the life in which we celebrate the mass as Catholics, gives shape to our life going forward. And that gets us to numeral letter C here. Participation in this event is that which has changed lives throughout the ages. The rhythm of life that is cultivated by this event, I'd argue, has shaped your life more than you actually realize if you're not Catholic. And to show it, let us play a couple of rounds of trivia as tables. Okay, so this trivia game, as I get the TV pulled up, we're going to play Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? It's not actually like in the format of Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader, but it's Super Catholic Liturgical Edition. And I do believe that it will be to some effect to show how much our <coughs> culture has been shaped by this encounter with Jesus in the Mass. All right, so uh, I'll give you freedom 
you might make your table mates offended, but you know, if you want to reshuffle, you have like five seconds to do so. Otherwise you're playing with the people that God brought you. I'm going to this table. <laughs> All right. So we have two rounds. Our first category is name that feast day. Okay. The category rules are there and I will read them right now. So on the following slides, you will be presented with a prompt about a well-known and celebrated saint's feast day in various areas of the world. As a team, you will have 20 seconds to consult with your teammates for an answer. When the 20 seconds are up, write your answer down and we'll move on to the next question. In this first category, there are five total questions for five total points. And the questions do progress in difficulty as we go throughout this category. <laughs> but these are not meant to trick you. And some of you, depending on where you're from or your experience, might have a greater advantage because of your heritage. Okay? So our first question. My name is St. Patrick. What day is my feast day? My feast day is especially or especially celebrated in Ireland, but now it is celebrated throughout the world and prominently in the United States of America. It is tradition to wear green, eat corned beef, and kiss people who are Irish on this day. All right, time's up. Okay, on to our next question. My name is St. Stephen. What day is my feast day? So I am considered the first martyr of the Christian faith, dying a very Christ-like death recounted in Acts 7. My feast is especially venerated throughout the United Kingdom, formerly the British Empire. It is a traditional day of football, soccer, just as Thanksgiving is to the United States for American football, as well as as a day to give gifts. What day... Is St. Stephen's Feast Day. All right. Final consultations. I'm not going to be too strict of a... All right. On to the next one. My name is Our Lady of Guadalupe. What day is my feast day? On this day, pilgrims throughout the world come and visit the miraculous tilma on which my image was imprinted when St. Juan Diego brought roses to the bishop with the message to build a shrine to me on the mountain where he found the roses. This is a source of national pride and celebration for the people of Mexico. All right, are we ready to move on? This is where we're going to start getting pretty hairy. My name is St. Charles Luanga. What day is my feast day? The blood of my martyrdom was the seed of the church in Uganda. On my feast day, millions, I emphasize the millions, because I have a friend who's a priest in Uganda who um, recounts the beautiful celebrations that they have on this day. Come to venerate the Ugandan martyrs, my companions, who gave their lives to witness of Jesus. This day is not somber because of the many deaths, but exudes celebration. All right. This is probably the most uh, obscure one, the hardest. My name is St. Januarius. What day is my feast day? So this is pretty cool. On my feast day in Naples, Italy, and on two other occasions a year, my blood, his blood, which is kept in a glass amicule, and the shape of a round cruet liquefies. According to the documentation cited by Italian media, Famiglia Christiana, the miracle has taken place since at least 1389, in the first instance, the first instance on record. In January, I was bishop of Naples and am patron saint of the city, and I died in 305 AD. What day is his feast day? Oh, I shouldn't have done that. 
throw it out. I will give you a freebie because I was so excited. I hate when I do that at school. So three times a year, the St. Blood traditionally liquefies um, commemoration of the transfer of his remains to Naples, the Saturday before the first Sunday in May on his liturgical feast. This is where I screwed up, September 19th. And then on the anniversary of the eruption of nearby Mount Vesuvius in 1631, when his intercession was invoked and the city was spared from the effects of the eruption, December 16th. Let's see how you all did. When is St. Patrick's feast day? March 17th. Gave yourself a point if you got that one. All right. When is St. Stephen's Feast Day? December 26th, St. Stephen's Day. Um, I don't know how many people are other Anglophiles, but that's a big day over there. So I kind of took a risk um, as we went throughout this. I'm like, eh, maybe these are a little bit less knowable. Um, okay, so Our Lady of Guadalupe. Give yourself a point if you got December 12th. I didn't know how many people we have touch points with the family as celebrations of communities. Um, but it is, that day is a party down there, as well as a party here in the America because of our Hispanic heritage here. Yeah. St. Charles Luanga is June 3rd. And then St. Januarius, I screwed up, but September 19th there. What's the credit for getting the month right? On which one? You can give yourself. Two points if you got it right, one point if you got the month. Because when I play games, everything's made up, and points don't matter. We're only off one. Got the right number? All right. Second category. What watered-down version of a Christian holiday do we celebrate? Our category rules on the following sides, you will be presented with a prompt of a secularized version of a Christian holiday. You'll be asked to name the secular holiday and then the Christian holiday. As a team, you'll have 20 seconds to consult as a team to your answers. When the 20 seconds are up, write it down. We'll move on to the next question. There are four total questions. For a total of eight points, you'll receive one point for each correct answer. The questions progress in difficulty as we progress in this category. Okay. Our first question. On this day, the Christian world celebrates the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It occurs on a movable day in the West based on the calendar, but it is always a Sunday. At best, the celebration includes going to church to witness the new life, to the hope of new life, and in sharing with fellowship with the joy that death has lost its sting, he is alive. At worst, this day is marked by friendly gatherings of eating ham, hiding eggs, and sleeping in. Hint, both answers are the same celebration. All right. My name is, on this... On the eve of this day, individuals dressed as ghouls, ghosts, and in other costumes to ward off evil spirits before the next day celebrations in which the Christian world celebrates all those who have merited salvation in heaven, all the holy ones. At best, the celebration for Catholics includes going to church either on this evening or on the next day to ask for the intercession of the saints and be inspired by their lives and celebrating with dignity as one can the spirit of the day. And at worst, it's a day that is marked by Ouija boards, horror movies, gluttony on candy, and staying out way too late. I'll give you a hint, too, if you're thinking about the day that is the next day. Just put whatever you're thinking about, Eve, in front of that. So Eve of or... Okay, on to our next question. My name is, on this day, the world prepares to enter into the penitential season of Lent. People generally empty their cupboards, literally and metaphorically, of all that they will be tempted by or will be asked to fast from during Lent. 
This day is celebrated especially in New Orleans as well as in the South. And then at best, this celebration includes prayerful consideration and indulging in moderation to prepare for the Lenten fast. At worst, this day is marked by drinking and eating too much, lying around the house, and promiscuity. What is... And I'll give you another hint, too. I didn't write it down there. It may or may not be both days. Yeah. All right. See any more writing? Okay, last one. So my name is, on this set of days, the world remembers the incarnation of Jesus Christ. This phrase has become an acceptable greeting for those who do not wish to say Merry Christmas to others. And the exact time period that is referenced by this phrase is the time between December 25th and January 1st. So at best, the celebration includes going to church and fellowship with one another in the joy of the Christ child. At worst, it's marked by drinking and eating too much, lying around the house, and being greedy over gifts received and those not received. All right. Write down final answers. All right, let's check how we did here. Our holiday for one, Easter, right? I kind of did a play on this one because how many people, there's a lot of people actually, I should say, it's kind of a primed question. Don't even associate Easter with the resurrection of Jesus, but rather the Easter bunny, right? But the whole reason why we celebrate this day is because the original Easter Jesus rising from the dead. Okay. Two. A, we have Halloween, which has its Christian roots in celebrating All Hallows Eve. Hallows as in all the holy ones, those who are hallowed. And so Halloween actually is now even removed from a Christian understanding, but it has roots in the preparations for um, All Saints Day. Just as I said, people would actually dress not as ghouls to try to enter into horror or mystery or um, the demonic, but rather to try to ward off the demonic. So would All Souls Day count, or is that not? That's separate. All Saints Day? All Saints Day. And that's why I said you could throw Eve onto it. Like All Saints Day, Eve, it's kind of... All right, so it goes by very many names. Um, all of them, so um, our American understanding, Mardi Gras, that Tuesday, it's kind of less removed from the Christian um, tradition. But especially if you've ever heard of, like, in Brazil, they celebrate Carnival. Well, carne, Latin root for meat. <coughs> Traditionally, us Catholics, we only fast from meat on Fridays during Lent. But that's not always been the case. It used to be throughout the entirety of Lent, you did not eat meat. So you would have a carnival and eat as much meat as you can because for the next however said many days, 40 days, you're not eating any meat. As well as Shrove Tuesday, you'd make pancakes because no longer are you going to have um, milk or dairy or eggs. And so you have to get all these things out of your cupboard um, so you're not tempted as well as it doesn't spoil. And then you see, I've just illuminated the roots of like how these practices actually began from the season of Lent, which we'll talk about here in just a minute. Number four, happy holidays. But when you actually refer to happy holidays, you're referring to the Christmas octave or happy holy days. And so when people don't want to say Merry Christmas and they say happy holidays, they're actually just perpetuating that Christmas feast because we'll talk about an octave here in just a few moments here. And so when you concise holy days, you get holidays. All right, final question. Your team can wager up to all of your team's points 
I will be the judge of correct answers, and you're going to have a minute to consult with each other. So go ahead, calculate out how many points you have, and then write your wager. Um, the topic is what do all these holidays have in common? But I will, re I will reveal them here in just a minute. Did you, Zach? No, we have family in town. Didn't he win last week or last year? Third. Third, okay. Yeah, I went up last All right, so we have our wagers written down. What do these holidays all have in common? Some of these you might not have heard of, but I'm going to use this to lead us into our transition. Christmas, Michael Moss, Candle Moss, and Martin Moss. <laughs> you, I'm, write it down right now. Write it, write it down. It's, this is for you. <laughs> Consult with your team. All right, so, final answer times. Yes. Got our answers down. All right. They are all celebrated with a particular mass in the liturgical year. For example, Christmas. If you drop the S, you get Christmas. Mass of Christ's incarnation, what we celebrate then. Michael Moss is the Mass of the Feast Day of St. Michael. Candlemas is the Mass of Presentation of the Lord. There's a traditional blessing of candles that day where individuals bring candles to the church to be blessed for the entirety of the year as the light is brought into the temple. And then Martin Mass is was recently, November 11th, it's the Feast Day of St. Martin of Tours. The whole reason why we had this as our final question is just because as we're making the argument of how is this encounter with Jesus perpetuated from his time here on earth when he said, do this in memory of me, and he perpetuated a meal, a ritual, a rite to make himself present in the breaking of the bread and known to individuals. Some of you have probably not heard of these last three. But we've all heard of this first three, or that first one, and that's the Mass of Christ's Incarnation. So from the beginning, Christ has given the church a way, and a rhythm of life in which people enter into this encounter. And we call that the liturgical life, or the liturgical year. And it's the way in which we walk with Jesus daily. So if we return to our handout... How does the church invite us? You're not going to ask us who won? Uh, if you really care about who won, you can, turn, you can turn in your sheets and I will give everybody a candy bar to the winners. I will grade after this. You do lose all your points if you did not get it right. Where's my daily humility? I feel like I got the first and last one. That's pretty good. My voice is kind of going out. But um, we're on letter D there, how the church invites us to live with Jesus each day. The invitation to a, a way of life. Would someone like to read Roman numeral I there? It comes from Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 1163. The audio of the various readers in the classroom was not captured correctly, so they are reproduced here. Holy Mother Church believes that she should celebrate the saving work of her divine spouse in a sacred commemoration on certain days throughout the course of the year. Once a week, on the day which she has called the Lord's Day, she keeps the memory of the Lord's resurrection. She also celebrates it once every year, together with his blessed passion at Easter, that most solemn of all feasts. Over the year, Moreover, she unfolds the whole mystery of Christ, thus recalling the mysteries of the redemption. She opens up to the faithful the riches of her Lord's powers and merits, so that these are in some way made present in every age. 
the faithful lay hold of them and are filled with saving grace. From the time of the Mosaic Law, the people of God have observed fixed feasts, beginning with Passover to commemorate the astonishing acts of the Savior God, to give him thanks for them, to perpetuate the remembrance, and to teach new generations to conform their conduct to them. In the age of the church, between the passion, Passover of Christ already accomplished once for all, and its consummation in the kingdom of God, the liturgy is celebrated on fixed days, bears the imprints of the newness of the mystery of Christ. When the church celebrates the mystery of Christ, there is a word that marks her prayer, today, a word echoing the prayer her Lord taught her and the call of the Holy Spirit. This today is the living God this today of the living God, which man is called to enter, is the hour of Jesus' Passover, which reaches across and underlies all history. So those two points kind of are just emphasis or um, encapsulations of what is being said here in these three paragraphs. The first is that the church gives us certain days, fixed days, in order which we celebrate the mysteries of Christ in his life. And we do them on a yearly basis, especially Easter. So we have this progress of time, day in, day out, year in, year out. But the church gives us a way of life in order to walk with Jesus and remember each year the mysteries of his life so that they become one with us in our lives. And then that second paragraph points to how it's not just something that the church made up. It flows from even the understanding that God gave the Israelites beginning with the Passover. And then we can think of the seminal Christian event of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit divine come, descends on the apostles. Well, was Pentecost first a Christian celebration or a Jewish and an Israelite celebration. If we look in the Old Testament, it was an Israelite celebration. So they were gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate a Jewish holiday. So Jesus, when he fulfills the law and the prophets, he brings this entire history and celebrations and feasts into the new work that he is doing in the new covenant. And then we participate in these eternal events that Jesus, when he was here on earth, did in his person, drawing them together, his humanity and his divinity, with that today. It, we enter into the hour of Jesus' Passover, which reaches across and underlies all history. And so we see there those two clarifying points. Participate in the context of the biblical and Christian understanding of that word anamnesis, of that remembrance, or do this in memory of me. And then past, present, and future meet in one today in the Mass, the celebration of the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And then there's a primacy of Sunday. By a tradition handed down from the apostles, which took its origin from the very day on Christ's resurrection, the church celebrates the Paschal mystery every seventh day, which day is appropriately called the Lord's Day or Sunday. The day of Christ's resurrection is both the first day of the week, the memorial of the first day of creation, but then also, if you look as it's the day after the seventh day, it's the eighth day on which Christ rests after the great Sabbath inaugurates the day that the Lord has made, the day that knows no evening. So, on the seventh day, creation is completed. On the eighth day, Jesus rose from the dead and enters into eternity. Which is why you'll see some baptismal fonts shaped as an octagon. Because eight sides, you're entering into eternal life through the sacrament of baptism. Sunday is the preeminent day for liturgical assembly when the faithful gather to listen to the word of God and take part in the Eucharist, thus calling to mind the passion, resurrection, and glory of the Lord Jesus and giving thanks to God who has begotten them again by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead unto a living hope. 
Beginning with the Easter Tridium as its source of life, the new age of the resurrection fills the whole liturgical year with its brilliance. Gradually, on either side of this source, this year is transfigured by the liturgy. It really is a year of the Lord's favor. The economy of salvation is at work within the framework of time, but since its fulfillment in the passion of Jesus and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the culmination of history is anticipated as a foretaste, and the kingdom of God enters into our time. So we're definitely beginning our descent here. We're coming from kind of laying the conceptual and um, theological understandings of what are we participating in, what's the nature of worship, how is it lived out for us, how are we drawn up into it, and to if you went to church this weekend and you haven't been, um, or if you're new to this whole Catholic Mass thing, you're like, huh, colors changed. Things are a little bit different. Something new is taking place here. So we enter into this encounter with the liturgical year, the way in which the church invites us to walk with Jesus every single day. And um, just for the sake of time, some of this I'm going to just kind of breeze through um, because we're going to come back to it or we're going to talk about it. But just clue you into that little graphic there. Right now we're in the season of Advent. And if you skip down, you see Advent on point one there is a period of prayer and expectant delight for four Sundays in preparation of Christ's comings at the first Christmas his presence to us each day at the end of and at the end of time. It's the beginning of the new church year. So Catholics around the world celebrated Happy New Year on Saturday as we entered into a new church year beginning with the first Sunday of Advent. And then in our church, you'll see just to the left, if you're looking at it from walking up to the altar, is the Advent wreath. And it's... Um, a hallmark of this season. And so we gather around a wreath, four candles, violet and rose that are lit one at a time on each Sunday. There's much more to be said about this season of Advent. But in this time, at least to know, is that we're preparing for Christmas. So it's a time of remembering Jesus actually came in the flesh. And then that he speaks to us every single day of our lives. So be prepared, stay awake. And then also that he's going to come at the end of time. And then we celebrate next on that graphic, the season of Christmas, that's point two. That's all the fun and joy of the holidays and festive season, which we have come to know and to appreciate. And it flows from this invitation from the church to rejoice. And then after Christmas and for most of the summer, uh, that's our experience. We come into ordinary time where Jesus teaches and preaches and heals. And when we use the word ordinary, we think of like, oh, boring, ho drum, like it's just ordinary, right? But we call it ordinary time because it's ordinal. It's time outside the main seasons. And it gives us an opportunity to mark our time throughout the year. We use green because it symbolizes that the church nurtures us in our spiritual growth as we hear about Jesus teaching and preaching and healing. And then just note, most of the time in our liturgical year is spent in ordinary time. As we draw near to Lent, which is the season of purification and enlightenment for you all. It's kind of like the final push through in this process. Um, we'll talk more about it, but it'll again be a marked difference. The church will be bare. There's less singing. There's a lot more fasting. There's a lot more prayer. There's a lot more almsgiving, which are marks of the season. But it's done so that we prepare ourselves to say, well, for two things. We say no to ourselves so that we can say yes to true things, as well as we actually anticipate the joys of the resurrection. So we withhold things from ourselves so that when we enter into the good things again, we say, 
oh my gosh, there's such joy in this life. And then we have the Easter season, if we correspond back to that graphic, and that's the season where Jesus rises from the dead, and we remember his final instructions to prepare his disciples to be sent out to spread the gospel. It's 50 days from Easter to Pentecost, and then the hallmarks of these seasons are should be celebrations. It's not just one day, it's perpetuated for another eight days, as well as then for an additional 42 in a different way, but in the same celebration and same spirit. And it's when we bring people into the Christian mystery by initiating them, and then in deeper ways through the sacraments of initiation. Any questions on liturgical seasons? It's a really brief overview, as well as very removed. But at least if you have been in the church now, you're going to see, oh, there's not really any flowers. It's pretty bare. There's actually an Advent wreath there. If you go to Mass, you're going to see Father in violet. In a couple of weeks, you might see him in rose. Not pink. I'll tell my joke. Well, yeah, but it doesn't help the joke. The joke is... Why, why is it not I, pink? I, I turned the joke around like, yeah, it's, it's Je- pink, it's rose. Because <laughs> Jesus didn't pink from the dead, he rose from the dead. That's how you can remember it. But at least to see on here a brief overview of the seasons. So when we get to Lent, or you hear of us talk about Lent, you can refer back to this handout and say, oh yeah, that's what the season of Lent is. Um, quickly... And again, this is probably a little bit more than is going to make sense right now. But just to recognize that when we celebrate the Mass, there's different ranks of the celebration. Every Sunday is a solemnity. That's the highest form. It's to be thought of as another Easter. And then there's also days throughout the year where we see how God has broken into time. And the church invites us to rejoice. And they're called solemnities. And they're listed down there at the bottom. So the impetus of the trivia game, as well as this emphasis right now on solemnity, um, comes from, if anyone's ever read Kristen Lovren's Daughter, it's kind of an obscure book, but wonderful. It's extensive. It's long. So, I mean, I would not expect you to go home and read it tonight. But I really do invite you to check it out, at least snippets. I listened to this book because it was too long for me to read. Kristen Lovren's Daughter by Sigrid Unset. I'll put it on the board as we... um, And I thought about this when Paul and I were talking because we were sharing about his um, Norwegian heritage or the family's association with Norwegian heritage. Um, But it takes place in 1300 Norway when Norway is still Catholic. And what's amazing about that book is she marks her days, not like we would, as in like December 1st. There's no references to it's March 21st. The major days in which she marks her life are the highest feast days of the church or other feast days of the church. So instead of saying it is September 28th, which is also St. Matthew's Day, she just writes in here, Kristen, or she's telling her account, it's St. Matthew's Day or St. Simone's Day. And she marks her life by the church. And it was my first time I actually saw the beauty of what the church invites us for solemnities. Because for them, life was work. Right? You were lived and bound by the field or your trade. But when the church said rejoice for a solemnity, you put everything aside. It was an actual opportunity to enter into leisure and rest. And so now, most people, if you hear of holy days of obligation, which are some solemnities here in the church, if you've ever heard that term, people are like, oh man, I gotta go to church. That's not the heart of a solemnity, as well as a Sunday. It is to step aside. God's entered into history. Our lives are not going to be defined by labor and toil. And then um, I'll make a note note there for B, 
The seven days that follow Christmas and Easter form what the church calls octaves and are treated as Christmas and Easter each day that they repeat. Thus are also solemnities. So if you've ever wanted to like say, hey, it's still Christmas, you can say it's still Christmas all the way December 26th, 27th, 28th, 29th to January 1st. So that is an opportunity to say, hey, it's okay to have another piece of pie. Okay? There's beauty to this liturgical life. And then I'll make note a feast. You can go back um, there. Second, uh, the thing that I'll highlight there is feasts will draw out a particular aspect of Jesus or Mary's life or a particular saint who the church holds for universal devotion. And these are obligatory in their celebrations in the church each year. Then we have memorials, which are the third rank. Some of them are obligatory. Some of them are optional. But it celebrates something in a life of the saint that's worth imitating, worth us being drawn to inspiration for it. And some of this is going to make more sense as I'm talking about the community of saints if you have questions about that, that's what we're going to cover next week. Um, but just to know that there's certain days throughout the year where we have heroes to remember them. And to be like, this is what I want to imitate in my life. And to ask for their prayers on those days. And then finally, there's burial days, which there's no particular celebration. And which we're really free to worship God um, in maybe a massive devotion or a votive mass that we would like to. Um, so there's no particular described devotion that day, um, but you enter into the life. And then you have on there the holy days of obligation, or solemnities, which are, we are required to celebrate at the Mass. So there's the solemnity of Mary, Ascension, depending on which diocese you're in. I lived in the Archdiocese of Kansas City in Kansas, and they moved it to a Sunday. Um, so it's not a holy day of obligation. And I could get into a whole diatribe about how it's better to be historical than convenient, but it is acceptable. Okay, I don't want to draw you into the life of inside baseball in the Catholic Church, um, but just to know, hey, if you go across the border in Kansas, Ascension's not a holy day. And then there's the Assumption of Mary, August 15th, um, All Saints Day, and Mary's Immaculate Conception, which is coming up next Thursday, and then on Christmas, which occurs on a Sunday. You get a two for this year, but it's not always on a Sunday. Easter is not a holy day. Why? Because it's already on a Sunday. Catholics are supposed to be going to Mass. <laughs> um, that's a trick question if you ever want to get anyone and you're in a trivia, one of those dang liturgical trivia nights. Um, and then just the last note here, <coughs> you can go and look through kind of the various colors of why we were certain things. Um, but just to know that there's a reason why Father is going to wear different vestments. They symbolize different things, and they're listed there on that last page. Um, on the penultimate page, the second to last page, you can kind of see a visual representation of the liturgical year, how it begins, what season, what it's about. So in Lent this year, this is 2019, begin down March 10th, you enter into the desert with Jesus, and then especially see that summer, how I talked about the spiritual nourishment and growth how it prepares for the harvest at the end of time. And then the last page is just a calendar. You'd like to see where we're at in the liturgical year. And that's current for this year. So as you go throughout, the, you'll be able to see, oh, hey, we're in Advent now. We're entering into Christmas. We're entering into ordinary time. Um, just as a handout. Because uh, this whole topic of the liturgical life when we actually start getting into it can get very overwhelming very fast and there's lots of facets and like you're going to meet some catholics they're going to be like what you don't do that and for a particular saint like come on everyone does that don't worry everyone doesn't do it like the best place to start is keeping sundays holy and then the next step is 
to remember the Lord's death on Friday. And then remember your day of your baptism, the day where you entered into eternal life. From there, you can start adding in the very levels. But maybe you are from a particular part of a country in your national heritage, and you have a saint for devotion. And so you have already a family history, so whether it's like you're Irish and it's St. Patrick. Well, St. Patrick can be a great invitation this year to say, hmm, how did Patrick actually encounter Jesus? Because it's not just about St. Patrick today. His life points us to Jesus. Next week, we'll talk about uh, the communion of saints, especially um, Our Lady, Mary. And then from there, um, we're not going to do a review on your calendar. We're actually going to do kind of like a walk through the Mass. So as I mentioned, 30,000 going to descent. Before we break for Christmas, we're going to actually like land the plane, talk about the practicalities of what happens at this encounter with Jesus at the Mass. Are there any questions? Thank you for listening to this great content from St. Peter Catholic Church. For more content, for other talks, for more information, please visit St. Peter Catholic Church, Lincoln, Nebraska, on Apple iTunes or on Podbean, and at our parish website, stpeterlincoln.com. God bless you.